0: CPD Health Courses. Try needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face to face practical. Start your training today at CPDHealthCourses.com.
1: Excellent. Well, let's get going. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to this special CPD Health Courses event. I'm Wayne Mahmood, Director of CPD Health Courses. And my guest tonight is Dr. Jan Dommerholt. He's a researcher clinician, author, and lecturer from Bethesda, Maryland in the USA. Now Jan is a Dutch-trained physical therapist who holds a master's degree in healthcare admin and biomechanical trauma. He also holds a doctorate in physical therapy from the University of St. Augustine in Florida, and he is currently a PhD candidate at the Alberg University Faculty of Medicine in Denmark. He's taught many dry needling courses around the world and lectured at conferences in the United States, Europe, South America, and in the Middle East. Jan is also on the editorial board of four highly prestigious journals, including the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy. He has edited several books on myofascial trigger points and manual physical therapy, including the Trigger Point Dry Needling uh, and Evidence and Clinical Based Approach book. He's authored nearly 60 book chapters and written over 80 articles on myofascial pain, fibromyalgia, complex regional pain syndrome, and performing arts physical therapy. Dr. Domaholt is president and CEO of My Pain Seminars, Bethesda PhysioCare, MTS Dry Needle, and CEO of Physio Fitness. Wow, well, that's pretty much the webinar all over now. Uh, but that's a very impressive CV. I'm sure you'll all agree. Jan, welcome and good morning.
0: Good morning. Good evening to you.
1: Thank you. I know it's very early in Bethesda right now, so we're particularly grateful for you, to you uh, for, for getting up early and talking to us here in Australia.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. No problem.
1: Thank you. Uh, now, my first question is, with all that, uh, th- that very impressive CV, do you have time to rest or play golf?
0: No, play golf is out of the question. That takes way too much time and you can't multitask while you play golf. But yeah, I do rest every now and then, but not a lot.
1: That's great. Yeah, well, I uh, I think uh, anyone with that CV uh, must be a very busy person, so thank you again. Now, our audience tonight is made up of uh, therapists from around the world. We have practitioners listening in from, of course, Australia, UK, India, South Africa, Hong Kong, Ireland, and your own homeland, Jan, Netherlands too. So um, although it would be great um, uh, for you and I to talk to each other all evening, let's just make sure that uh, everybody can still hear us. Just send us a little uh, chat link and uh, we'll make sure that everyone uh, can hear uh, Jan and I. And also while you're doing that, if you want to ask any questions of Jan, then uh, please use the same uh, chat window to send us your questions and we'll do our best to get through them. Uh, we've got a lot of people registered for this, uh, over 400 people in fact, so uh, there'll be the, the, uh, an opportunity to ask questions but perhaps not every single question. And of course this will be recorded and we'll be able to send you a link so you can hear it again at your own leisure. To make sure that we recover cover as Yarn is aware of who's listening, some people listening to this are going to be new to dry needling. And some people have already done courses. So it's, it's a mixed audience. So let's get going. Just so we're all clear, Jan, you're a physical therapist, which is a term that we don't use here. But how does that equate to uh, here in Australia and around the UK in terms what is what is a physical therapist?
0: Well, physical therapist is basically the same as a physiotherapist, the term that you prefer. Um, really, pretty much in every country around the world, those terms are interchangeable. In the US, the term physical therapy is usually used, uh, well, the rest of the world mostly uses physiotherapy. The only exception I know to that rule is in Ireland, where physiotherapists and physical therapists are actually not the same. Uh, physiotherapists are what you and I are, um, the, um, so basically the physiotherapists like you're used to. The physical therapist in Ireland is someone with a rather limited education, which is quite confusing. Um, because in the rest of the world, these terms are indeed interchangeably. and the, the World Health Physical Physiotherapy Organization has actually um, uh, an explanation of that on their website. So That is kind of important to realise that, other than in Ireland, the terms are
1: the same. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so basically, we are physical therapist is a physiotherapist, so we're all uh, clear on that here. And of course, we're here to talk about dry needling. So. Let's start from the beginning. Where did dry needling start and how has it developed since its origins?
0: Well, that depends a lot on who you ask. Um, in my case, I believe that so the, the, what I teach started with injection therapy. Uh, Janet Trevell, who wrote the David Times, wrote the Trigger Point Manuals. Um, started treating people with myofascial pain using procaine injections. And already in the early 1940s, she started doing this in the late 30s, early 1940s. And in the early 1940s, uh, there were already people who said, you know, I am not so sure, sure that it's really the procaine that does it, that gives the desired effects. I wonder if it's not just a needle. Well, Travelle did acknowledge that, that it could be the needle, but there was no research from that at that point. No one knew, and it was not till 1979 that Carl Levitt from the, from the Czech, Czechoslovakia at the time, now the Czech Republic, published an article in Pain, uh, a retrospective review of his experiences with dry needling. He introduced the term dry needling, um, and he reported needling not just of trigger points, but of tendons, of ligaments, of scar tissue, and found a remarkably high anesthetic value to just using an acupuncture needle or a solid filament needle. So, in my tradition, I knew Janet Travell, I knew David Times before they both passed away. Um, dry needling was really the same as injection therapy, except instead of an injected an injection needle, we started using a solid filament needle, acupuncture needle. If you would ask the same question to quite a few acupuncturists, they would say, oh my gosh, no, dry needling started uh, many centuries ago. It, it is in form of acupuncture and nothing more. It is uh, treating as sheep points. Or... So it really depends a little bit on what your background is. And that also is part of the controversy, whether dry needling is acupuncture, whether it should be considered physiotherapy or chiropractic or medicine uh, or whatever you want to call. Um, the way I learned dry me came straight from Travell and Simon, who actually I, I was taught by both of them. And Travel never really looked at acupuncture. That came later when Trevelle published her book in 1983, the first edition. At that point, acupuncturists in the United States contacted her. It's like, oh my goodness, this is the missing link to our work. Um, later, I got turned around a little bit again and then some people have even accused herself posthumously that she purposely reworked acupuncture to make it fit her model well, that is
1: absolutely not true um
0: but again, it depends a little bit on who you ask
1: yeah well so that's what the an initial answer that that's a that's an excellent answer and um uh, uh, thank you. Uh, the, the interesting thing about your response, of course, is that you are uh, the source, as it were, because you've you've carried on the tradition and uh, the, the learning and teaching from the, the pioneers of dry needling, as they're widely known, uh, Travell and Simons. And um, what's interesting to me is that given that Travell and Simons weren't actually using acupuncture needles, um, and you're saying they're using procaine injections, did you and you've learned from them, Did did you? Uh, how did you work in the acupuncture needle to the trigger point needling or dry needling at that time?
0: Well, that really started later. Um, I worked in a pain management clinic here in the Bethesda region, and um, the lead physician of that clinic was uh, Robert Gerwin, who also worked very closely with Travel um, And it became frustrating to me that I would have to point out to the physicians in that clinic well you probably want to inject this you probably want to inject that so at one point I asked the authorities the, the physiotherapy board here in my state like can I do dry needling because I was familiar with that although again trevelenheim is never used dry needling um, and to my surprise the physiotherapy board says yes you can do dry needling there's no problem mm. it's like really Well, I can do that so at that point I started looking into mostly with Robert Gurwin. Uh, again, the physician I worked with, okay, how do I do this? Because there were no courses uh, really to speak of. And um, so I started looking around the world, who does anything like this? So I ended up taking courses in Canada with Dr. Chen Gunn, who does the intramuscular stimulation, which is a variety of the variation of dry needling. Yeah. I started working and I started taking courses in Switzerland, where there were some early physiotherapists trying to kind of figure this out. And in 1995, so almost 20 years ago, we had the great pleasure of Peter Baldry from England, mm. uh spent 10 days in our practice, in our clinic. So, Peter Baldry is probably best known for starting superficial dry needling. He spent literally 10, two weeks, 10 days in our clinic, and we saw patients with him and spent a lot of time with him. And we're constantly talking and discussing and he said, you don't have to do this kneeling so deep, you just do uh, superficial kneeling that works perfect, because that's really all he did at the time. Um, he actually called the deep joint needling somewhat barbaric, I remember that term.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, later in life, he changed that a little bit, he, he became a little bit more open, like, well, the superficial kneeling may not always work as well. If it doesn't work, it's probably better to go deeper into the trigger point and, and try to treat it that way. So. I really had to kind of travel around the world to learn how to do this. And, I, and most of it I learned directly from, from the people who uh, developed this whole trigger point concept. I mean, Travel Simons, Bob Gerwin, I would certainly put in that list. Um, Gerwin did not do a lot of giant meddling either, but the principles were exactly the same. So it became very clear quickly that, yeah, we can do this perfectly fine. Um, Using the same theoretical background, um, so we never really looked at the acupuncture literature either as far as meridians and, and other ideas that, that there was there was a totally different, almost a parallel world um, that at that point we know nothing about. And and again, Sravel and Simons really were not too invested in acupuncture either. They became interested in acupunctures when acupunctures pointed out to them like, hey, this actually fits particularly uh, uh, Mark Seen, uh, who's a uh, well-known acupuncturist in the United States. He has founded an acupuncture school in New York City. He actually wrote a book about this in his experience with Truvelle and called it The Missing Link in His Acupuncture Practice. Right. So in the, the second edition of Truvelle and Simon's book, they do talk about acupuncture, but that was greatly based on the interchanges they had with acupuncturists after they f- published the first edition of their book.
1: Right. Okay. So, so the, the, the differentiation there between acupuncture and dry needling is a great segue there for me to ask you. Obviously, uh, there's been a lot of debate about the difference between acupuncture and dry needling. And in fact, in the US, uh, that, that's been a topic of conversations in several states as to whether physical therapists can use dry needling because the acupuncturists uh, feel that that's their domain. How do you feel the difference? What, what do you say to uh your um your students as to the difference between the two?
0: Yeah, that is always a very loaded question because again it depends a little bit on it depends primarily on your perspective. Um, when dry needling first started. And became a little bit more popular. But the state I live in, 1984, the state of Maryland, approved by kneeling for physical ther- physiotherapist. It was the only state. Very few people were doing this because there were no courses, there was no education. There were some early pioneers, I guess, in, in in this region who worked with travel travel lived in Washington D.C. at the time, so she was very open to talking to people. So kind of some people started figuring it out by themselves. The Initial response, let's say from some, someone like Mark Seem, was quite positive. And uh, he actually published an article in New York and in the physical therapy magazine that, you know, it's actually wonderful that physi- physiotherapists can do this. When it started spreading more, and, and we started teaching courses, and other people started teaching courses, the historical context kind of disappeared, in my opinion. And non-medical acupuncturists, particularly, so physicians, not the physicians who practice acupuncture, but people who already go to acupuncture school have usually a master's degree in in acupuncture. That world of acupuncture became very concerned and really started raising red flags everywhere in the country and a little bit in your country as well, as a matter of fact. That that debate happens there as well, but probably not as fierce as in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It became more and more, it was suggested that the dry needling would constitute the exclusive practice of acupuncture, uh, which can only be practiced by acupuncturists. And, you know, in, from my perspective, acupuncture is by definition performed by acupuncturists. When I use dry needling, I, anyone who would observe me would clearly see I'm not practicing acupuncture. Though if you look at what I do with needles, there is guaranteed a lot of overlap. With some of the techniques we use, some of the, the positions we use, um, it may look the same, but within the context of a physiotherapy treatment plan and management plan, I clearly think and act as a physiotherapist and not as an acupuncturist. So, to me, the argument is: it acupuncture? physiotherapy? Is it chiropractic? Is it medicine? Is it veterinary medicine? Is it dentistry? Because these are all disciplines. Uh, in, in Australia, you have the myotherapists who use dry needling. The issue shouldn't really be which discipline owns the right to hold that needle. Uh, each discipline should figure out how can we apply this within the constraints of our discipline and, and make it part of it. The issue is not who should have the exclusive right. As soon as you start thinking an exclusive right, I actually think you go against what, what's established, that an, an overlap in scope of practice is necessary for a society. I mean, the, the Pew Health Organization has studied this in detail, not in relation to dry needling, but certainly in relationship to overlapping scope of practice in general. Once you start looking at an exclusive scope of practice, healthcare costs will go up and the quality of healthcare will go down. So the debates of like, is it acupuncture or physiotherapy, to me are almost a waste of time because in the end, the consumer will decide if you want more of an acupuncture approach and dry needling you go this way. If you want more of a visual approach in dry needling, you go this way. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. I refer a lot to
2: acupuncturists.
0: Yeah, They, they do things I don't do. They have an entirely different discipline. Um, and then people resort in the opposition to this dry needling concept by physios, which is growing drastically, very, very fast right now.
2: Yeah,
0: It's probably not an argument about Who's allowed to do this? I cannot escape the impression that it's more an argument like you are threatening my income and I'm going to do whatever I can to protect my income source. Oh. And So I think that we can't separate that. That's not an argument that's heard a lot, but I, it, it's hard to imagine that that's not part of the thought process, that all these physiotherapists in the United States, that last I counted, there's 17 continuing education programs that offer some variety of dry needling.
2: Yeah,
0: and they're, not, they're not all what I teach. There's lots of different ideas about it, and that's, that's wonderful. But I think it's seen as a tremendous threat. Physiotherapists have insurance reimbursement. Acupuncture often does not. Um, and rather distinguishing what makes acupuncture unique and what makes physiotherapy unique, it, it is, people go the easy route and say, oh, acupuncture. So i acupuncture. By definition, you cannot do that.
1: No, I agree. And look, uh, as you know, I'm an acupuncturist as well. And, and for the record, I, I see myself uh, when I practice acupuncture, it's a completely different uh, treatment to when I practice dry needling. And in fact, that the sorts of conditions that acupuncturists generally treat are not the same type of conditions that a physio or an osteopath or a chiropractor treats using needles. Uh, in fact, acupuncturists would probably be. Uh, treating more general health issues uh, and rather than musculoskeletal <laughs> problems. Would you agree with that?
0: I, I do agree with that. And I think the scope of, acu- of acupuncture practice is actually quite different. I mean, the, if you look at education, I looked at the physician organ- uh, training for the acupuncture at Harvard University, for example. They have what they call structural acupuncture. mm mm-hmm. And about 15, 20% of their curriculum overlaps with the scope of physiotherapy practice. Right. That's mostly in the musculoskeletal area and mostly in the pain management area. But they, they have courses on fertility and acupuncture. Well that is mm-hmm. clearly outside the scope of physiotherapy. They do things about dermatology, they do things about gynecology, and, um, which is really not part of, of the scope of physiotherapy practice. So. I don't really think there is a a problem, but yet I mentioned by name in in multiple uh, opposition position papers, and people quote the World Health Organization, that the World Health Organization would would say that acupuncture is acupuncture and not for physiotherapy. Um, That is really not what the World Health Organization said either. There is one publication that I have been able to find, and I've searched a lot into this that actually mentions dry needling as a form of acupuncture in the table. Yes. Uh, but the World Health Organization has also said that, that using acupuncture in a more modern medical care sense means that you, are, you can't take it out of the traditional context and apply it as a therapeutic technique for a limited number of conditions. Um, That is what the World Health Organization actually wrote. So I think we are in agreement in that sense that, you know, that little bit of overlap in scope of practice, musculoskeletal disorders and pain, I don't see any reason why physiotherapists could not use the same tool. And to me, the invasive nature is really not something that I worry about too much. Um, Physiotherapists do a lot of invasive procedures, certainly in the United States. And when I was in the Netherlands, I, I did not. We didn't do as much invasive work. But when I moved to the United States, the, my first job was in wound care in a hospital, right. and I was given a scalpel to do debridements. Well, I had never done that before in the Netherlands.
2: Mm.
0: Now, if if we are allowed to use scalpels, yeah, uh, which are um, potentially much more dangerous than than a solid filament needle or an acupuncture needle, yes. The nature of the, the invasive nature of dry needling is, is almost irrelevant. And I refer to dry needling in that sense as an instrument-assisted manual therapy.
2: Yeah.
0: Yes, I use a tool. I palpate with that tool. I treat with that tool. I may help establish the physiotherapy diagnosis with that tool. But all those uses are clearly distinctly different from what acupuncturists do. Yeah. Yeah. Again, having said that, from an acupuncture perspective, if you define our points as painful points outside the meridian therapy, besides the, the meridian system, yeah, most trigger points probably qualify as an our point, but that you're really comparing apples to oranges. You're really looking at different languages, different structures. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can try to compare them, but those comparisons almost always end up in nothing. Yeah. So I think we need to take a step back and say, okay, in the context of your profession, how do you use this tool? Yeah. Because that's all it is. It is not a discipline, it's a tool.
1: Yes, that's um, right. I've heard you say that before, and I, I completely agree that uh, yes, acupuncturists will probably say, those who are uh, resistant to dry needling, that uh, dry needling therapists are just uh, using our she point. But uh, that's not really true, because even if you look at acupuncturists, they never treat our she point. Uh, on their own. It's always part of a system of diagnosis and examination which might involve looking at your tongue, your pulse and all sorts of other general health things which are completely outside the scope of physios, osteos and chiropractors. But let's leave the the acupuncture story just a little bit and go back to more practical stuff but still on that line. I like to always say to students that um, with the acupuncture side of things that when they're detailing what they've done to a patient as far as the treatment goes, they should refrain from using acupoint names such as gallbladder 34 or stomach 36, and, and, and they should use the muscle uh, that they have treated so that they can clearly identify themselves as having performed dry needling as opposed to acupuncture. How do you feel about that? Is that something that you uh, agree with or, or suggest to your students?
0: Yeah, most definitely. We we do have acupuncturists take our courses, mm. and the acupuncturists who've taken our courses always say, without exception, this is entirely different.
2: Yeah.
0: They may look at like, hey, when you treat a trigger point in the upper trapezius, I would call that a gallbladder uh, trigger point, point. But what you do, your thought process is entirely different. So yes, there is some overlap, and you can you can mix those worlds if you want.
2: Yeah.
0: But as a physio. I would have to study acupuncture first before I can use acupuncture terminology.
2: Yeah. Because
0: if, it, if I say gallbladder, whatever, it means nothing.
2: Yeah.
0: Now, if I treat the, the adductor uh, polishes, uh, I can call it colon 4 of larger intestine 4. Mm. But that means nothing in the context of my physiotherapy treatment. And and most physios, I don't think, should use those terms of acupuncture unless you also qualify as an acupuncturist.
1: No, I agree. I but agree. Until then,
0: till then you just, it is the adduct apologist and it is not uh, in large intestine four because that means absolutely nothing. So comparisons between traditional acupuncture points and trigger points, by definition, in my opinion, are flawed. Yeah. I mean, I did a paper about that. and, and was quite simplistic. I mean, well, Malczak is a very bright man, but
2: mm.
0: I think he kind of messed up with this old paper from the mid-70s, in which he said that there's a, like a 70-some percent overlap between acupuncture points and trigger points, yes. that that really reflects such a misunderstanding of both acupuncture and trigger point work, mm. and, which has been later refuted by, by Stephen Birch. He's published several articles about that, that Malczak really was wrong you look at the meaning of acupuncture points, and then she said how an acupuncturist would use points, certain points within their context, within their frame of thinking. Uh, Stephen birch who's a renowned acupuncturist, said uh, maybe there's an 18, 19% overlap, but that's it. Yeah. Not everyone agrees with that. Uh, I mean, uh, Dr. Dorcher from the Mayo Clinic here in Florida in the United States says there's a 90-some percent overlap, but again, looking at these points... And looking at the crosses that Travelle put in his times in, his, in his Travelle man, trigger point manuals, that means absolutely nothing. These X's in Travelle's books are randomly chosen points that where Travelle frequently would find trigger points. Yeah, but You can't take those as an absolute that this is the trigger point map. A lot of people do. I, I review articles for about almost 20 different journals, and quite commonly when people... Submit articles about trigger points. They say we treated trigger point three in the trapezius muscle.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, that was really not what Travell intended. If you read Travell's book carefully, if you look at the muscle like the upper trapezius, like the trapezius, he has, I believe, seven trigger points listed or yes. marked in her book.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, if you if you've ever treated a patient with migraine headaches, they may have twenty trigger points in the trapezius muscle.
2: Yeah.
0: And so. Those seven, what do you do with all the other 13 trigger points? Now, are there seven B and, and six A? And then mm, mm. it doesn't make sense to say, well, these are the locations of trigger points by travel Yes. Yeah. Now, these Xs are one person's experience, almost like a guideline. You're going to look at this muscle. These are the spots where you probably find some, but you need to look at the rest of the muscle as well. So these comparison is: there's an acupuncture point or a trigger point, they really they're kind of flawed. They really don't work. The, the location of trigger points are not absolute locations. We know from more research that trigger points appear in the innovation zone of muscles. Yeah. They are directly linked, in our current understanding, directly linked to dysfunctional motor end plates. That is the predominant hypothetical framework right now. It has nothing to do with those X's in the book.
1: Yeah. No, you're making a lot of sense, Jan, and uh, really resonating with, with uh, what I feel about uh, the book and the guide that it gives you. But uh, not necessarily something that says, "Well, just put your needle here." Uh, and that's important to remember. And uh, just uh, moving on, and something that I heard you uh, refer to in a really clever way uh, on a on a uh, video I, I saw of you the other day, talking about dry needling and research generally. Um, Here in Australia and around the world, we're moving, of course, in an evidence-based world. And uh, people want to know where is the evidence for dry needling? Is it, uh, where is it along the scale? And you gave this scale in this speech you made uh, on this video as being, uh, starting off at ridicule, uh, moving on to violently opposed and uh, finishing off with, yeah, we've been doing it this way all the time. So where is dry needling at the moment? Where are we on that scale?
0: Yeah, that, uh, I I was wondering what you were referring to, but I know what you're referring to now. The, <laughs> I actually did not come up with that uh, comparison.
1: That's oh, you can take the credit, Jan.
0: I can take the credit, but it was really a quote of uh, German philosopher Schopenhauer who came up with that, and it's a variation on that. The It's quite interesting because that happens. Has happened many, many times. When we started teaching dry kneeling courses in the U.S. and in Europe in 1997 in the U.S. and in 1996, we started teaching courses in Europe. Very few people were doing this. And yes, I got lots of letters in those days. The email wasn't really quite that popular. Finally opposing this, like really, like, what are you doing? This is not physiotherapy. That still happens a little bit. There's still physiotherapists who think that this is the worst thing that ever happened to our field. And there's some websites where, where people keep saying the same thing, that this is the worst thing ever. Um, some very prominent physiotherapists in the U.S. really were opposing this. This is not physiotherapy. And all of a sudden, in 2009, I believe, so 12 years later, at the annual conference of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physiotherapists in the U.S., where there was a vote whether dry needling should be considered part of the scope of practice. Some of the most prominent oppositional physiotherapists said, but we've always done it this way. It was actually like they had read Schopenhauer's work and said, like, oh, no, this, we've always done it this way. I don't know what. This is so difficult. Yeah, I mean, I fell out of my chair almost when I heard that. It's like, really? And mm-hmm. that's not what you wrote in your book two years ago or in mm-hmm. your article two years ago. But I think that's what happens. So the, in spite of... Is there really a lot of research on this or not? I think the research is emerging. I would not say that dry needling is a done deal, that we know everything about dry needling, far from from that. But so when people say, is there enough evidence to support dry needling? The answer is, well, there probably is enough evidence to support the concept of trigger points and treating those. Dry needling clearly... Physios around the world and other disciplines do that, see very dramatic results. So in part of our evidence-based thinking, if you look at the scientific process, every scientific experience starts with observations. I think it's fair to say that today, tens of thousands of physiotherapists and others have similar experiences. We treat our people, our patients, and part of what we do, and that's important to know also, part of what we do is maybe dry needling and we see very dramatic results. We see a reduction in pain almost immediately. We see an increase in range of motion. We see uh, muscles that all of a sudden can fire again that previously were inhibited. They use a few needles and a few trigger points or other structures if you choose to. I have definitely a bit of a trigger point bias based on my background. Um, You see dramatic changes. So I think part of that evidence-based model is that we see these observations we are almost obliged to say, okay, well, let's look at this, what is going on? And there's a bit of wishful thinking in some of the articles, most definitely. That people come up with claims that, are, that maybe are not always supported. Um, in a recent article in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy claimed that there was great A-level evidence. Um, Even people like Lorimer mostly kind of protested that on his website. He said, well, when we read that paper, is that really? Is there really that much evidence? The authors of the original article don't do dry needling, they did it as an academic exercise. So you can argue, is it really, is there enough evidence or not? Um, I think we need a lot more evidence. We still don't know why dry needling works, for example. Yeah, Like what is the mechanism if we put a needle in a structure in the body and we see in case of trigger points, we see a local quick contracture of that forward band of the contracture. What really happened? Yeah, we can visualize it. We can use sonography and see it. We can measure it with EMG needles. But why that happens and why it gives such a dramatic relief of pain all of a sudden, that is a mystery. No one knows. Oh. Is there enough is there enough research to say like, well, this is something we have enough evidence to move forward? I think that is where we are. The American Physical Therapy Association a few years ago started looking into dry kneeling because people were questioning, state boards were asking them what do you think? Should we approve this or not? So in two thousand ten or two thousand nine or two thousand ten, the American Physical Therapy Association put a committee together. I was I was a member of that committee, to present basically all the research that existed at that point about dry needling in humans only. The APTA would not look at animal research, which is a bit unfortunate, I think. There's, there's some very interesting papers in the animal research world. But just looking at the human research world, the committee put together a portfolio of articles that met certain criteria. The APGA took those articles and approached a group of scientists, PhD-level physios and others, and asked that group, can you look at these articles for its validity, reliability, methodology, etc., etc.? In other words, do these articles meet scientific scrutiny? That committee consisted of people who never did dry kneeling. They really did it as an academic exercise. Let's take a look at that. That committee, and subsequently the APTA, concluded, yes, there is enough evidence for the APTA in America to say, okay, there's enough evidence for dry needling to move forward and we can put our stamp on it, our stamp of approval, that yes, there is enough, but we clearly need a lot more. You know, in everything we do in physiotherapy, uh, if you look at almost any meta-review of studies, it's always the same. Look at any Cochrane review, it's always the same. Yes, there is some evidence but we need more high-quality randomized controlled studies. Yeah. when well, dry needling, that is really difficult. To do randomized controlled studies with dry needling is not impossible, but it's really, really difficult. It is hard to blind a patient to whether they could stuck with the needle or not. Mm. Certainly in trigger point dry needling, where you try to elicit what's referred to as a local twitch response, that is a very distinctive feeling. You can't really... Take that away from patients. You can't blind patients to it. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, there's only one study published ever that was a truly double-blind controlled study.
1: Mm. Tell us about that.
0: And there was a, There was a study done in uh, in in Spain, and one of the offices, is Orlando Mayoral, from Toledo, Spain. And what what they did, they looked at uh, I think about forty subjects, if I remember top of my head, who were about to undergo a total knee replacement. Right. And prior to the surgery, just a few hours prior to the surgery, these patients were examined for the presence of trigger points in the muscles around their knee that would be operated on. And then the subjects were divided into three groups. One was on a waiting list, so that became a control group. But the people who actually went for surgery also were divided in an intervention group and a control group. And what they did after they were anesthetized, the Physiotherapy would go in the surgical suite, in the surgical theater. Patients were anesthetized, so they were actually blinded to whether they got needling or not. Half of that group did get needling prior to surgery, all these trigger all these trigger points, the other half did not. So the patients, when they woke up, they had a total knee. That's all they knew. They had no recollection. They had no awareness whether they had dry needling or not. Right. And so, it was truly double blind. You know, it's a little cumbersome to do that in clinic, to knock mm. patients out yeah, every time yeah. to do a double blind mm. controlled study. But what they found was most profound. First of all, they saw local twitch responses, which they did not expect to find in anesthetized patients. Mm. They assumed that in anesthetized patient, that, that neurological feedback, which the twitch response is a spinal cord reflex, that it probably would be so diminished that it wasn't worth looking at it. Well, they were wrong, and much to their surprise. Yeah. But secondly, when they looked at pain management afterwards and pain levels, the people who were not treated with dry needling, it took them six months to get to a 20% level of their original pain. The people who did get dry needling, it took them one month to reach that same level of comfort. Mm. So dry needling was the only variable, yeah. and it made such a... It was a six times faster recuperation much less dependency on analgesic medications, and it clearly showed that dry needling made a huge difference. Now, the mechanisms of that are mysterious. We don't really know why it works. Yeah, And that's why we need to look. I think most of the research is not so much on clinical outcomes. Most researchers that I work with, that I'm aware of, look at how does it work? What is going on? Is this a motor and plate problem? Is there, what does the muscle spindle do? What? What's actually going on? Is there a theoretical hypothetical model? Um, most of what we do in physiotherapy is in the hypothetical stage. We don't really have in that scientific model. The ultimate is the scientific theory. Well, I don't think there's anything we do that has reached that level of evidence. And Dry-kneedling is very much like that. There are over 9,000 published articles about trigger points in the, in the peer-reviewed literature.
2: Yeah.
0: But we don't have all the answers. So to take that back a step further, the people who oppose dry needling, and again, there are some physios around the world who really don't think we should be doing this, that we're based in our that time, that's just a fad, that's all so marketing and gimmicky. And and I can appreciate that. But So they say dry needling is no validity whatsoever. But I've argued with that group, in one particular group in, general, in particular. Um, okay, so you look at all these observations of tens of thousands of physios across the world, if indeed the evidence shows at some point that it's a waste of our time and we need to stop doing this, let's go for it. That's, I'm fine with that. But the people who opposed this, they have not done the scientific experiments to, to refute the hypothesis. In this case, my case, the integrated trigger point hypothesis has not been refuted. People talk about it philosophically, but they have not been, if you want to really be an evidence-informed profession. If you oppose something, you should also come up with the evidence that it is indeed not true, that it is wrong. You can't just say, well, I don't believe this is right, so therefore it is wrong. You need to say, okay, this is what they say. Let's study this objectively. And if the results of the experimental studies show that there is no validity to the claims made whatsoever, you need to present that to the literature in the scientific literature, not just Babylon websites, because that has no scientific merit. You need to go back to the scientific literature present this. We did this to the best of our knowledge. We did a double-blind controlled study, or we may use sham needling. Now, that's a bit controversial whether that really exists, but you can try to come up with experiments that review the hypothesis. You would be adding to the scientific process and not just sitting on a website and making all kinds of comments and philosophical statements and feelings and expressions and saying needles are threatening and it's the placebo of the needle yeah. that causes the effect. And it, uh, it, people are very influenced by the magic of a needle. You know, tomorrow, this afternoon, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm teaching, I'm leaving for Florida for Texas, mm. Houston, Texas. I'm teaching tomorrow, a course, for a joint meeting for veterinarians which is also done in Australia, there, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Frank in the Perth area does a lot of trinealing with canines
2: yeah.
0: and uh, I've met her, I've talked to her several times and, and we're very much on the same wavelength. I teach with a local vet in Houston, I teach as the veterinarian.
2: Yeah.
0: In my lectures I often show a, a video of a boxer, a dog, not a not, not boxer <laughs> boxer <laughs> but a dog. Not Muhammad Ali. And, no, not now. No. So, this is a boxer, a young boxer, kind of a puppy. But this dog really has no strength in its left hip muscles. Now, you can't ask the dog, okay, is this your familiar pain or resist this? You have to come up with more creative methods to measure that in dogs. But we just put pressure on the lumbar spine of this dog. He cannot, the dog cannot stabilize the left hip. So, if you pick up the right hip, press down on the spine, the dog just collapses. Yes. The right side is very strong. The vet in this case, Doctor Rick Wall, needled five six muscles in the lumbar spine area in the hip region, and after that, the dog is strong as can be. Mm. Does that dog know placebo? Mm -hmm. No, dogs don't do placebo. That is as objective as you can get. Yeah. Um, Dry kneeling is used in the equine world more and more, with astonishing results. Yeah. Uh, Even in your country, in Melbourne, I mean, I, I love that story. In in the aquarium in Melbourne, many several years ago.
2: Yeah,
0: and they published that there was a, a shark hmm. swimming in circles and not kind of like I'll kind of be a little bit confused. They caught the shark and the myotherapist and the veterinarian did dry needling. Hmm. I always question if it's a shark. Is it wet needling, dry needling? Is <laughs> but they basically, they basically did dry needling on a shark. They palpated and they said, "Hey, that's a trigger point." They used dry needling once, and the shark problems were corrected. Wow! Do we really think a shark has <laughs> placebo? I, I don't believe that. So I, I'm totally fine with opposition. These are new ideas. These, I mean, they're really coming from the late 70s when Levitt published his paper first and really didn't pick up till the mid-late 90s and certainly in the last five, six years it, it's becoming a little bit more popular. Everyone wants to do some form of dry needling. If you oppose this, get your act together, get off your website, get from your webcam and start actually doing the research to say, hey, this dry needling is a waste of our time. Here's the evidence. Yeah. I have never seen papers that do that. I've seen papers that question it that say, hey, we, we, this is not supported by this research. That's great. Let's go back to it and follow the scientific process. If we really want to be a science-informed and evidence-informed profession, that's what we need to do.
1: Absolutely. I think uh, you, you've uh, summed it up beautifully there. What we need to do is uh, move the research for dry needling. On and, and uh, do that on animals, uh, fish, uh, animals, and uh, unconscious patients. That's where we need to move to. Moving on to the… I think that's one model. <laughs> so um, let's move on because unbelievably, we are uh, pushing on. We're actually three-quarters of the way through. But let's talk about important matter. And a few people have asked some questions about this already. Uh, Iatrogenic traumatic pneumothorax, there is more and more reports of that, certainly here in Australia. Is that because more and more people are doing dry needling or uh, do you have some serious safety concerns and if so, how can we mitigate that risk What what are the things that we're talking about? Obviously, uh, the the upper trapezius is the area that we're looking at the apex of the lung a danger area. What's what's uh, what's going on with those figures? Why is it increasing and how can we stop it?
0: Yeah. I, I do have thoughts about that. Um, that doesn't probably surprise you, but the with the rapid growth of courses, I think both in Australia and in the United States and in Europe as well, I mean, Van Linden is really becoming very popular. And in the United States, I could talk to that probably the best, and maybe in the Netherlands as well, for some other the countries in Europe. <clears throat> what we see a lot is that courses are becoming shorter and shorter. That, from my perspective, course instructors have a level of assumption about knowledge of anatomy by physiotherapists that's probably not warranted. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not convinced that all, all course programs really spend enough time in looking at what is the actual anatomy look like?
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, we teach courses in clinical anatomy uh, with Andre Fleming up here in the, in the United States. And we look at, at cadavers in, in our lab and we use our needles. We actually look at the, where does it go? Is this something we can do? We've done this in live patients with ultrasound with pornography. Uh, we've even done with, with, uh, with C-arms, with video fluoroscopy video, 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 to really see is this safe to do or not. I am not convinced that all course programs take this seriously enough. Um, you know, If you need all the serratus anterior muscle or an anterior scalene or the trapezius or the rhomboids, any of the muscles where you're in close proximity to the lungs, you need to take lots of precautions. Oh. Um,
2: the
0: anterior scalenes, uh, uh, the serratus anterior and anterior scalenes are really, really, really close to the lung, even closer than trapezius. Now, I don't hesitate needling those muscles in patients if it's indicated, but I follow very strict anatomical guidelines. Even in the acupuncture literature where pneumothoraces happen as well, um, I mean, uh, there's literature there like in, in publishing acupuncture in medicine a few years ago by, by a name of the gentleman, the unfortunate name of Puker. It doesn't really sound very <laughs> nameless, but he's German.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, he shows that, you know, these can all be prevented if we use anatomy as our guidelines. So we need to start with anatomy. In my opinion, dry meetings should be anatomy-driven. Yeah, yeah. If you know anatomy really, really well, three-dimensional anatomy, you may have to go back to the cadaver lab and really look at this. Like, really, how big is this muscle? How close am I to long? lung? Yeah. Having done that, now I teach courses in Ireland. And have done for many, many years. And just uh, this, this month, actually, last month in August, a paper was published um, by uh, Sarah Brady, she's the primary author, she did most of the research on this, on adverse events of dry needling. And these were physiotherapists in Ireland who had completed our dry needling program in Ireland. Yeah. And the program in Ireland is a little bit different than what we do in the United States. It was actually a shorter program, uh, with a little bit less theory, we, really the practical part of dry needling was what's what we emphasized. We evaluated almost 8,000 physiotherapy treatments prospectively. And again, the paper is just published in the Journal of Manual Manipulative Therapy. And what we found is that the most common adverse events were pain during and following the needling, and maybe bleeding and hematoma.
2: Right.
0: And one of the Reviewers of that paper for this journal actually said, why did you include those adverse events? Isn't that you stick a needle in someone, wouldn't that be sensitive on anyone? So that doesn't really sound like an adverse event. Well, it is and it isn't. It depends how you define that. We looked at the European guidelines of how adverse events are defined. Yeah. And we used it very strictly. And an adverse event is any non-intended outcome of the intervention. Yeah. So our goal is not to cause bleeding if we hit a blood vessel. Our goal is not to cause pain with the kneeling. Our goal is to improve range of emotional strength or, or reduce pain. Yes. So therefore, in following that consistently, pain during needling would be an adverse event. More importantly, though, if you look at the classification of adverse events, is significant adverse events where the pneumothorax would fall under. A significant adverse event did not occur in our study at all, but almost eight to 6, 7,629 treatments. Um, We had aimed to get 10,000 treatments, and for lots of reasons, we were not able to get that many. So we had to statistically calculate what the actual risk is of a significant adverse event. The risk was less than 0.04%. Wow. That doesn't mean it's zero. There's always a risk. But if you... Let anatomy be your driving force behind where do you place those needles? How deep do you place them? What techniques do you do to place the needles? It is extremely safe in comparison. If you look at like uh, like uh, aspirin or, or uh, ibuprofen, the risk of a significant adverse events is fourteen to eighteen percent with those medications.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: No one worries about them. Everyone takes them, and then we go on the end it's. Of course, we do know, of course, tremendous gastrointestinal bleeding at times,
2: Yeah,
0: 14 to 18% compared to 0.04%. That's right. I am not sure that all course programs would come up with that same number. Yeah. I think if you don't emphasize anatomy really, really carefully, you see disasters. I have never had a pneumothorax. Yeah. I've done this for a very, very long time, but I'm very careful and know the anatomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. It can happen. I mean, it. I think it's all a matter of how seriously do you take it, how well are you... If you teach a course, and I know you do, if you haven't come over the muscles on the trunk, mm. your course participants should not necessarily go out in the clinic and say, oh, I know how to do that. I know how to... Survey. I know the serrated is imperious. I can do this. Yeah. That, would not, that would be foolish. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: If, you're not, if you don't know it well, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm concerned. So the increase... Mm. And in the States, we see an increase as well.
2: Yeah.
0: It's hard to capture how many times it happens because in the, UN, the United States, there's no reporting re- uh, requirement. Oh, I see. So we don't really know how often these things happen. Yeah. But the American Physical Therapy Association has asked the insurance companies, now mm. uh, practice insurance companies, and yes, there were what I thought a significant amount of money had been paid out for these cases. Yeah. But from the insurance company perspective, it was kind of irrelevant. He said, oh, no, that really is not a concern for us.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it
0: happens. Is it really that common? I don't think so. I think it's very common in acupuncture as well. Yes. But again, as I said, the acupuncture literature and the dry needling literature clearly suggest if you focus on anatomy, this should not be an issue.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Anatomy is king, and that has got to be at the heart of dry needling. And uh, we, we've got to actually really uh, move through now, so I'm going to get to the nitty gritty and get some questions. So we, we need to uh, just whip through these questions if I can, thank you Jan. Uh, just some um, quick answers, what do you think, swabbing or not swabbing, what's the verdict before you needle?
0: No need to do that. There's no evidence that it works. In some countries it's required, in other countries it's not even allowed.
1: Oh, okay. Next question, gloves or no gloves? Now, I know that we're talking about, you might ask, when are we talking about? Do we wear gloves while you're needling or only if we're going to come into contact with uh, blood or possibly?
0: Uh, the OSHA in the United States, Occupational Health, Health Administration, has defined the use for gloves anytime there is a chance of contact with bodily fluids. Yes. In my version of dry needling, when I take the needle out, we always put compression hemostasis on the side of needling. Yeah. By definition, in my opinion, that is potential exposure to body fluids, so I would never needle without at least one glove on my non-needling hand. Sure. Absolutely. Good. Great. I know many people don't do that, but I think it's it's take. Why would you take the risk? Yeah. Hepatitis Absolutely. B is extremely contagious. I have no interest in getting that.
1: <laughs> no. Okay. Now, a lot of uh, courses uh, here and around the world um, promote the use of real-time ultrasound to help locate and localize taut bands. In fact, there's a recent study that I'm sure that you're aware of in, of all places, the Ukraine, who suggested that ultrasound-guided dry needling was superior to dry needling alone. Your thoughts on that one?
0: Yeah, I've been in contact with that author. I would love to be the subject of the study and say who's more accurate in doing that the ultrasound machine of myself. I seriously doubt that an ultrasound machine can do that. It's actually quite cumbersome to do.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, Ultrasound, I think, is helpful in research. I really don't see it as a clinical application unless you want to do studies on outcomes. Ruth Mayer in the United States did a great outcome study using ultrasound. In clinical practice, I think it's really a matter of how well educated you are in finding trigger points. Sure. I don't think you need an ultrasound machine to do that.
1: The palpation is still very important. The what? Pal- palpation. How do you, where it is more important?
0: Uh, I think I think I think palpation is the key to dry needling. Oh, perfect. Palpation and anatomy. If you know anatomy, then you can palpate. You need to know what to feel for. Um, it's really not for deeper muscles. There are muscles where you can't palpate. There's subscapularis. You can't get your hands on the scapula. Mm. But we use the needle to palpate. There's no reason not to do that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Palpation is definitely uh, a very important tool and somewhat lost, I feel, these days that with therapists are, are uh, uh, you know, thinking that, oh, well, you know, we can use these needles now. We don't have to use any soft tissue techniques. Let's just uh, use the needles, but palpation is a is a fantastic tool and a key to a, not just dry needling therapy but many other techniques.
0: maybe that's the answer to your question why there are more new authorities because people maybe not palpating well
1: enough well that's a good point if we,
0: we did we did that in the in the uh, cell major muscle we did needle that muscle, yeah and you now you can't really. Help it. You can help it through the abdomen, but we need it either from posterior, from the side, through the QL, the quadratus lumborum.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, before we did that, back in 1998, we actually did a course with this anesthesiologist teaching physicians how to do botulinum toxin injections in the psoas major. That was the, that was the course. Yeah. We used the C arm in the course, and every time we put the needle in, we did that blindly. We turned on the C arm, and we were 100% accurate. Wow. We've never published that because we kind of just did that on, on the fly. Yeah. But after we did that that course and we did a lot of procedures like that in that course, had people practice it, we felt very comfortable. Like you know, we can teach this perfectly fine without yeah. the CRI, without the ultrasound. Yes. Um. There's no reason to do that. But you know, again, I'm not convinced that a lot of people have taken the time to look at it quite that detailed. Yeah. To make sure that what we do is safe.
1: Yes. Okay. Now, uh, quickly moving on, we've got. Uh, what if, uh, I can ask you your favorite techniques, which conditions respond the best? How, which ones do you find, wow, that worked really well with dry needling? What sort of conditions do you uh, uh, love treating? <laughs> Just <laughs> in one minute or two. In,
0: in my, in my <laughs> clinic, we see lots of people with headaches, migraine headaches, tension type headaches, temporomandibular issues, uh, but also low back patients. As long as they have pain, I think you can use dry needling. I, I don't really have a favorite. I, I think it applies to most pain conditions.
1: Okay, so pain is the key. You know, if we've got pain and it's coming from muscular origin a taut band, then uh, we, we we should get good results, right?
0: Well, it doesn't really have to be from muscular origin because half the time we don't really know what the origin of pain is. Pain yeah. is a perception. Yeah. But I think we can use muscle to intervene and take get rid of persistent nociceptive input from the periphery.
1: Right. Okay. All right. Now, well, I know we've gone just over time, but if you would just. Uh, indulge me with uh, some questions from uh, the uh, the audience. Is that okay, Jan, a few more minutes? Sure. Okay, sure. so um, someone wanted to know if you play tennis. We're not going to ask you that question. What about periosteal pecking? What do you feel about that? Show me the data. Show me the data.
0: Carl Leffert did do that in his article in 79. Um, I don't see any reason why not to do that, but I'm not familiar with too much research on that. It actually shows that it's useful.
1: Okay. All right. Next question. Um, okay. Uh, we've got the question about, can you needle above C2 safely, i.e. splenius capitis and all the suboccipitals?
0: That's a great question. We, the only suboccipital muscle we actually had for gate-needling, the oblique capitis inferior uh, the other muscles we have looked at, also again, with ultrasound and in the anatomy lab, I don't think you can palpate the recti muscles carefully enough to know for sure where you are. You're very close to the vertebral artery. You're very close to the foramen magnum. And, and again, look at the literature. There are papers where people have injected through the foramen magnum right into the brainstem acupuncturist. and acupuncturist tried to treat himself and actually put a needle directly in the uh, medulla oblongata right through the foramen magnum. It is risky. Uh, the, I feel comfortable with the oblique cap inferior, uh, but using a very specific joint needling technique and the direction and location, we only need on the medial half of the muscle. The lateral half is half is too close to the vertebral artery. We've looked at that with MRIs. Actually, we showed it in our courses. And spleen is capitis. The only way I would be comfortable needling that above C2 is direction in, uh, insertion. Uh, so on the uh on the skull itself um and needling in no man 's land is very risky i don't, I would not consider that, but yes, it is possible, but again, anatomy needs to be a driving force
1: absolutely okay uh great now with uh the local twitch response and you've mentioned that before, and of course we we know about uh Peter Baldry and uh superficial needling now a lot of patients find uh, l t r quite a uh, painful, quite a a, a, um, a a painful procedure. What are the alternatives? Is that the the only thing, or, or what do you think about as a as a uh, alternative? Superficial needling.
0: Well, superficial needling works perfectly fine. I mean, um, but it's probably not as effective. I mean, there are a few comparative studies by Sacherelli in Italy and a few others, and even Peter Baldry has looked at that himself. There is no literature that shows that superficial needling is better than deeper dry needling
2: yeah.
0: uh, that I know of. I don't think it exists. Um, yeah, so you can use it. I use superficial dry needling fairly commonly. Yeah. But most of my patients, again, pain is a perception. So if you, I believe that some people say you, with deep dry needling, it cause more, you take the risk of more sensitization. There is no literature on that. Yeah. In the context of that therapeutic encounter, I think if the patient understands and you educate that person that yes, you will have a somewhat painful response, but that painful response will probably reduce the reason you came in here, the pain you came in with. And I have never seen sensitization. Yeah. yeah. Several years ago at the IPhones conference, to make it short. At the IPhones conference in Quebec. Um, one of the keynote speakers said in the presence of pain, physical physiotherapy needs to be pain free.
2: Yeah.
0: As she was speaking, it was actually one of your fellow countrymen. As she was speaking, I wrote her an email and said, I totally disagree with you. <laughs> but that's a concept that's very common in the sensitization that is in physiotherapists all over the world write this, oh, it needs to be pain free, you get more sensitization. I have been hurting people for the last 20 years, I have never seen more sensitization. Never right. ever. Mm-hmm. And I strongly believe in the context of the therapeutic encounter, that brief noxious stimulus, which local twitch response causes, I don't like getting it either. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. has never led to sensitization. And I think within the context of the therapeutic encounter, it doesn't happen because the patient knows this is actually good for me. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's no doubt in a a lot of ways. It's a bit like the the manipulation or a, a grade four manipulation where you're getting a crack, if you like, out of a joint that patients often who, who want that type of technique will often feel better if they hear that. Now, in a similar way, if somebody feels a twitch in, in, a, in a trigger point, if they're not needle-averse and they've had this before perhaps and had good results, they often feel better once they feel or see something happening.
0: That is true. But again, if you look at the literature, there's ultrasound literature, there's EMG literature, That shows if you elicit a twitch response, you get a greater reduction of pain. Mm. Well, whatever mechanism, we don't know what the mechanism is. It may be that indeed people feel that, oh, now I'm feeling better. That's possible. Who knows? We don't know the mechanism of dry kneeling. But there's no question that the data strongly supports that the listening twitch response, if you treat trigger points, is more effective than when you don't.
1: Okay. Now, uh, someone about trigger points, uh, I've got. uh, Kim Jeffrey, who says that uh they went on a course and were taught to take the needle out once they've elicited a twitch and then a colleague of hers uh, or, or his uh, did a a course uh that was the same thing, but they left the needle in which one's right after the twitch response they're, prob-
0: they're probably both right i I think that the a mistake is if you elicit one twitch response to think that you're done yeah. If you look at the the studies that, that have looked at what these trigger points look like and certainly end plate noise, which is a characteristic of trigger points, in that nodule that you may be able to palpate, there may be 10, 15 contraction areas at the sarcomere level. Um, I would advocate, as long as the patient can tolerate that, try to elicit as many twitch responses as you can in that area. Yeah. We do one twitch response and take it out. The chances that you actually irritate that nervous system yeah. are significant, and patients often have more pain.
2: Yeah.
0: You want to leave the needle in. I have no objections to that. But again, where's the literature that supports that that is actually superior to eliciting multiple twitch responses then take the needle out? Right. I mean, I do it in some patients. I mean, it's the same with using electrotherapy. You want to put a current on these needles. Yeah. I did it last week with a patient and made a huge difference in his particular case. Yeah. It, it is. It is. These are all variations, and we don't really have the ultimate answer. Like what is really the best possible way to do? Yeah. When I look at the literature, which I do extensively, there are certain parameters that keep coming back up. And until we have better answers, I typically don't let. Leave needles in place for a long period of time. Yeah. You know, acupunctures do and other dry needles do. Yeah. And they claim good results. Have they published that? Have they looked into that? Well,
1: no. That's debatable. <laughs> the answer is no. That's it. They tried.
0: So I have no objection to it. We can all try different things. It won't harm a patient. Yeah. Um, but do we really have good evidence that that's more superior to listening multiple Twitch responses? And then do other things. I mean, dry needling is again is just a part of a bigger treatment plan. Uh, we may have to do other things. We have to do soft tissue stuff. We may have to do range of motion strengthening, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what, every, what physios do in general. Yeah, dry needling is just a little tool to facilitate that process. That that's how I look at it.
1: Yeah, that's just another catalyst. Cool. Yeah, that's right. Now uh, it's not every day that one gets to talk to uh, someone of your. Uh, achievements and importance in the, the dry needling world. So I'm just going to keep asking you questions till you say bye, Wayne. No, just kidding. No, how much time have you got? Another four minutes, do you think, till 10 past nine? Are you there, Jan? I'm there? sorry,
0: I had muted you. Oh, sorry. So it's uh, 7 06 a.m. in the United States. and yeah. I have a patient at 8 a.m., so I have about five uh, to 10 minutes left.
1: Rightio. Thank you very much. Okay, so. What's the importance of the the gauge and length of needles? Do you use different types of needles? I know there's lots of smooth needles, less smooth ones, different uh, widths. Do you you vary the needles or just use one type of needle? Uh,
0: We definitely use needles with different gauges because when I treat someone in their facial muscles or hand muscles, I use as thin a needle as I can possibly get away with because it's so sensitive. Excellent. In the face, I really don't like to get any kind of bleeding, the yeah. bigger the needle, the, the thicker the needle, the, larger the, the greater the chance you're going to hit some vessels in the skin. You really don't want people walking out of your clinic with big bruises and, mm-hmm. and they're going to be thought of that their husband to beat them up or whatever. Yeah. So if you're looking at the cell was major muscle, you cannot reach that muscle unless you use a very long and probably a little thicker needle because yeah. it will bend in all directions sure. except the right one. So again, anatomy dictates, Anatomy and common sense dictates what size needle you use. Whether a needle is really smooth or whether it's this kind of steel, that kind of steel, in my opinion, is not that relevant. Yes. Some needles, I think, are better for dry needling yes. versus acupuncture. Acupunctures tend to put a needle and leave it there. In dry needling, certainly my version of dry needling, we kind of use a needle in a pistoning kind of way. If there's a little bit smoother and a little bit coating on that needle, that probably doesn't hurt because it makes it a little more comfortable for the patient. Sure. But again, most of the discomfort from dry needling comes from the twitch response, not from the process of moving the needle back and forth. Absolutely. But there there are some differences. I've tried lots of different brands, and some of them are clearly a little bit nicer than others. Yes. And, you know, that's probably more personal preference than anything else.
1: Okay. Now, uh, Tim Trevail is asking this question that, uh, do you find there are fast, slow, and non-responders to dry needling? Good question, I thought.
0: Yeah, that is a great question. That's actually something that Peter Baldry uh, maintained and has looked at that. He he looked at strong responders and weak responders. And yes, of course. Uh, again, if you, I, I like to look at the neuromatrix from Ron Malzac again. And We have lots of input systems. We have a processing plan, and we have output systems. And I think every single person, therefore, is unique. What you do with one person may not work as well with the next person, although their headache presentation may be exactly the same from my perspective. Yes. Uh, Yeah, you have to gauge that. Some people really shouldn't be used, but you should should not be used because it's not going to work. Yes. But people are terrified of needling, which is extremely rare, in my opinion. I mean, it is an official diagnosis, a fear of needling. Yeah. People are always a little little anxious about needling, but that's not the same as fearful. I think if Mm. the practitioner is convinced and does good education about you have ongoing peripheral nociceptive input, I could take that away, you can explain it at whatever level the patient can understand that. I don't find fear of needing a big factor in my practice. No. You know, but I have an advantage. people come to me just for that purpose, so they're already a little motivated on their homework.
1: Yeah. But I don't think
0: that's a huge factor, to be honest.
1: Um, I think it depends on you. Some too. people do respond. It, it, it depends de- on the
0: clinician. It depends on the patient.
1: Yeah. And it also depends on how you present yourself as well. I think that's important. You know, how you look, how Absolutely. you move in the clinic, how you behave, how you speak. All these things are really important in that uh, whole, what I call the uh, patient room choreography and uh, how everything happens because they're going to get a lot of, uh, you're looking for someone who's going to have trust in you. And if they have that, then levels of anxiety will drop. So, um, I'm no, going- if I treat a
0: sorry, if I treat a patient and I want to needle the lateral pterygoid muscle, I actually use a five or six centimeter needle. Right. If that person doesn't trust me and I put that size needle in their face, <laughs> it's not going to work. No, there needs to be a trusting relationship. And with dry needling, that's no different than with any other thing we do as physiotherapists.
1: No, absolutely. And uh, look, uh, talking about patients, we will now uh, close now. And I know I'm sorry to people who've uh, asked some other questions, but we haven't got around to you. This uh, whole last hour and 11 minutes has just flown past, and I could talk to you for another hour or two. Uh, But uh, we need to let you go. And before we do that, though, I would like to sincerely thank you for your time this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and uh, we hope that you can... uh, Spare some time uh, in the future to talk to us again and of course, um, I would also like to to, uh, let everybody know that a book that I would highly recommend to anyone, I know there's been some questions about this already, highly recommend for anyone who uh, who does dry needling or is interested in it is uh, Jan's book, uh, Trigger Point Dry Needling, An Evidence and Clinical-Based Approach. It is a very common sense book, easy to read. And it's a fantastic addition to, uh, to uh, the dry needling uh, paradigm. And we've got a discount that you can uh, use. I'll send you that link later on. So, Jan, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you. It was my, my joy to do this.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, a and, uh, good morning to you. Thank you. Thanks, Jan. Now, uh, for uh, anyone uh, listening still, and I think there's 178 of you still listening here, uh, there's an AccuNeeds prize of $200 worth of needles, and uh, we'll uh, certainly uh, draw that and uh, tell you who the winner of that is. There's also the discount from Club Warehouse, and I'll send you the code that you can use to get 15% off your next purchase from them. Uh, And I'll send you the link to Jan's book, and, of course, if you want to hear this again uh, or you would like to tell other people about this fantastic webinar, then I'll send you a link to the recording of this, um, uh, this webinar. So, on behalf of CPD Health Courses and uh, Dr. Jan Domaholt, I'd like to thank you all for attending this evening. I hope you've enjoyed it. There are going to be more webinars. I'm already talking to my uh, next person that I'm going to interview. Uh, full of information about dry needling, about all sorts of things that may help us to be better practitioners and help our patients. So thank you and good night.
0: CPD Health Courses. Dry
1: needling training for health professionals.
0: Online theory plus face-to-face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com.